You're listening to The Semi-Filled Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. Did you miss me? Don't answer that. Uh, We are doing an extra special episode today. This is episode 30. Um, It's going to be a film debate, but we're going to be doing it a little bit differently. Usually I'll select two films and decide between the two which one is better. Today, I will be discussing eight films. You heard that right. We're about to go into Uncharted Waters. These are the eight films that are nominated for Best Picture at this year's Academy Awards. I made the conscious decision to watch all eight films and three streaming services and $60 later, I reached my goal. I have my notes and I'm going to use my debate format to determine which of these is the best film. Whether it's going to match up with the Academy or my personal decision is yet to be determined. Let's get started. The nominees for Best Picture are The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. We will still have seven rounds, but here's how it's going to be different. I won't discuss every single film in every single round. That's too much work and we'd be here forever. I'm going to highlight the top three, maybe four films in each round. I'll explain why they excelled in that category, and then I'm going to give them a weighted score. The top film in each round will get three points, second place gets two, and third place gets one. At the end, I'll add up the scores and the movie with the most points wins. I will talk about each film in my opening statements. I'll give a quick synopsis of each film and explain briefly the one or two best things about each of them. Let's start with The Father. The father, in this case, is Antony, who is in denial that there is anything wrong with him at his advanced age. He has various conversations with his daughter Anne, her boyfriend Paul, and a new caretaker named Laura. The problem is that after each conversation, something in his environment shifts. Anne and Paul look like completely different people. His home is now his daughter's home. A statement that was once true is now a lie. He tries his very best to be in the moment and to make sense of what's happening in front of him, but the reality is that Antony is in the early stages of dementia, and his situation will not get any better. Director Florian Zeller does a great job of adapting his own play into a motion picture. That's right. He originally wrote this for the stage. There is a unique form of storytelling happening during The Father, and Anthony Hopkins gives one of his best performances in a very long time. Judas and the Black Messiah. It's based on real events. It starts with Bill O'Neill, a low-level criminal, getting arrested for impersonating a federal agent and stealing a car. In exchange for dropping the charges, Bill must go undercover for the FBI and infiltrate the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party, led by Fred Hampton. Over time, Bill becomes a trusted member of Fred's inner circle and gains valuable information for the feds. However, the war between the Black Panthers and law enforcement escalates to a dangerous level, and Bill debates whether or not betraying Fred is worth his freedom. The strongest part of the movie is the acting. I had an interest in nearly every character that appeared on screen, and I would say my biggest takeaway from the film is that it's a tragedy that a bunch of white people in power force a black man to take down his own brothers. Mank is referring to Herman Mankiewicz, 
who during the film was in the process of writing the screenplay to Citizen Kane. The film shows a series of flashbacks where Mank meets and socializes with many powerful and influential people in Hollywood, including media mogul William Randolph Hearst. Those same people recognize that Citizen Kane is really about Hearst, and they try to convince Mank to not risk his career and continue with the project. Mank should be considered for Best Picture because Hollywood loves to celebrate itself. In the past, the Academy has given the highest honors to films such as The Artist and Argo with both proving that the art of filmmaking is magical and heroic. Aside from that, it's a wonderful-looking picture. David Fincher and company do a fantastic job at recreating the look and sound of Southern California in the 1940s. Minati takes place in a different decade, the 1980s. A Korean family moves from California to Arkansas in order to build their own farm and to make a better life for themselves. Well, this is mainly Jacob's idea. He's the patriarch. He risks losing all of his money for this venture, while his wife Monica is thinking more practically and wishes for a more secure way of living, one that will benefit their two children. They constantly fight about the future of their family, while the kids rely on church and their grandmother for comfort. With all the problems they face, the question is whether or not the farm and the family can survive. I fully expected this movie to have racism at play, but that didn't happen. I liked that the situation was sort of insulated. It's the family that creates their own problem, and it's up to them to figure out how they're going to move forward. Nomadland is about a woman named Fern, who loses her job, her husband, and her house. We spend a year with her as she lives in her van and travels around the country doing seasonal taxing work. During her travels, she beats other nomads with their own stories, and even though she becomes a part of a community, she is adamant about keeping her independence. Leading up to this recording, it seemed like Nomadland was the frontrunner to win all the major awards, and here's why. The movie beautifully captures a society that also exists in America. These are people who were failed by a capitalist system, but they still make the best of living in a country that they still love. I don't think this has a real story arc, but the point is to observe. There are no heroes or villains, only people with different life choices, and we should respect that. Promising a Woman is what I call a fantasy revenge story. You have Cassie, who has no career aspirations or life goals. Her only objective is to hold accountable every man that has tried to take advantage of a vulnerable woman. But now she has an opportunity to punish the man who raped her best friend many years ago and the people who either enabled the behavior or denied that it even happened. This film deals with a very serious subject but Emerald Fennell puts a fresh take on it and has given others the possibility to tell similar stories in mainstream. More importantly, Promising Young Woman shows that rape deeply affects everyone involved, not just the victim. Sound of Metal is the story of Reuben Stone, one half of a successful rock band. He experiences sudden hearing loss and learns that it will be permanent. His inability to hear jeopardizes his musical career, his relationship with his girlfriend Lou, and his sobriety. He's referred to a shelter for recovering drug addicts who are also hearing impaired. And while he adjusts to living while deaf, his only wish is to go back to the way things were. This is a great film because less is more. It doesn't require a lot of dialogue to tell a great story. There are incredible sound effects that put you into Ruben's mindset and the acting, the physical expressions tell you everything you need to know 
about what's going on. And finally, the trial of the Chicago 7, which is based on real-life events. There were originally eight men accused of conspiracy and crossing state lines with the intention of inciting rights at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. In flashback form, we see that these leaders brought in hundreds of people to Chicago to protest several important issues, particularly the U.S.'s involvement in the Vietnam War. But the Chicago Police Department, in charge of keeping the peace, resorted to violence to break up the crowds. The Chicago Seven have the right to a fair trial, but the presiding judge does everything in his power to sway a guilty verdict. Recently, I have found courtroom dramas to be quite entertaining, and this is no exception. You have a clash of multiple personalities in and out of the courtroom, and this film does a great job of weaving the cross-examinations with the events leading up to the DNC. Okay, let's get to the rounds. First off, round one. Round one is story. The films I've selected for this round are The Father and Sound of Metal. I know, I just said that I would feature at least three movies each round, but these two stories are far superior to the other ones. A few of them were predictable, two of them had very low stakes, and I couldn't just buy the story to Promising Young Woman. It's best to not ask too many questions. Anyway, I've already given the premise to each story, but I'll talk more in depth about them. I promise, no spoilers. When you have a story about dementia, most of the focus is on the family members having to take care of the one that is sick. You come to understand their frustration and pain in taking care of a loved one that is this ill. In The Father, the focus is on Antony, the one actually going through this decline. They come up with a really creative approach to showing Antony's perspective. Most of the film takes place in one location and they make these subtle changes to the setting and play with time to sow confusion. I'll give one example. Antony overhears Anne and Paul arguing about him. He walks in and Paul is bending down at the table and has her head in her hands and they realize he's in the room and asking to join him for dinner. After dinner, Antony steps away and he overhears the exact same conversation. When he goes back into the room, Paul is again bending down and is again covering her face. The framing is the exact same, except there are now dirty dishes on the table. And you start to ask questions. Did this conversation happen before or after dinner? Are either of these scenes real? Are their concerns real or is it just Antony's paranoia at play? Imagine having these illusions happen all the time. It's gotta be aggravating. One thing that I did not know about before watching Sound of Metal is that not only is Ruben losing his hearing, but he's also a recovering addict. And that really changes his approach to overcoming his challenge. You see, he's been sober for years, and when we meet him, he's in a very good place. He's playing music, he's touring the country with the love of his life, he's figured it out and has resisted any urges to use. But when the hearing loss occurs, the issue isn't so much that he might use again. He just feels like there's no other way to cope. This was his comfort zone. He ends up going to the shelter, he learns sign language, he befriends everyone he meets, yet he still has the desire to go back to his comfort zone. There was one really great line in the film that says a lot about Reuben's character arc. At one point, Joe, the man who runs the shelter, he says, Reuben, from where I'm sitting, you look and sound like an addict. I mean, the story is simple. Reuben's want is to get his hearing back and to tour Lou again. But his need is to accept change. 
But what's interesting here is that his desire to return to his old ways is his new addiction. So it just feels like an even bigger challenge to overcome. I think based on the innovation of the storytelling, I'm going to put the father as the winner of this round. So it gets three points and Sound of Metal gets two. Round two. Round two is dialogue. And for this round, we will be talking about Mank, Minati, and the trial of the Chicago Seven. I know people spoke differently in the 1940s and every line of dialogue in Mank sounded like it was from that era. Think about the movies from that time, like Casablanca or The Philadelphia Story. Think about the delivery of those lines. There was almost an air of arrogance to them. Mank captured that tone. The spoken lines were all smart and fast. Are you sure Aaron Sorkin didn't write the script? It didn't matter if it was Mank or his assistants or the studio or Hearst himself. They would all say something clever, and without taking a moment to think about it, another character has an immediate response that's just as sharp. Today, we definitely do not talk like that. It sounds too unnatural, but maybe we're just a less intelligent generation. In Minati, nearly all of the characters have quality lines, even the children. Most of what Jacob and Monica, the parents, most of what they discuss is frustration because they can't see eye to eye on their plans for the family. They yell a lot, but even in quieter moments, their arguments are just as painful to watch. Many of the exchanges between the children and their grandmother were some of the funniest. Sunja is not like an American grandmother. She's loving and happy, but she's also crass, and the kids, particularly David, they don't know how to relate to her. I'll give you a sample exchange. There's a scene where David is caught wetting the bed, and Sunja is saying something down there is broken, and she asks how to say that area down there in, in English. She finds out, and she says in her broken English, penis, penis is broken. David follows it up with, it's not called a penis, it's called a ding-dong. I was always caught off guard with these funny exchanges. The Trial of the Chicago Seven, this one was definitely written by Sorkin, and we should already be familiar with his use of fast-paced dialogue. What's effective in this movie was that there were so many characters, and there was ample opportunity to create conflict between every person. The defense attorneys, the prosecution, the judge, the defendants themselves, everyone had a beef with someone. I find this story ironic because the Department of Justice was trying to make an argument that the Chicago 7, all of these leaders, cooperated and came up with a unified plan to cause a riot at the DNC. Yet when they're all in the room together, all of these leaders could never agree on anything and are constantly bickering with each other. I'll make this a quick decision. The trial of the Chicago 7 will win this round because it was the most entertaining out of all the films. Mank gets second for its intelligence and ability to match the tone of the 40s, and Minari will come in third. Round three. Round three deals with characters. I based this decision on how interesting the characters themselves were, not on how they were acted. I'll get to that a little later. The three films in consideration for characters are Judas and the Black Messiah, Nomadland, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. If you watched all of the Best Picture nominees, you'll know that Judas and the Chicago Seven take place at roughly the same time and place, 
and deal with some of the same characters. In Judas, you have different groups in play. On one side, there's the Black Panther Party, who have alliances with other gangs like the Crowns, the Young Patriots, and the Young Lords. On the other side, there's the FBI and the Chicago Police Department. And in the middle of this war is Bill. The movie skims the surface of what the Black Panthers are about, but they are definitely seen as sympathetic in the situation. Mostly because the FBI and the cops are bigger jerks. Another reason is that there's more of a focus on the relationships between the comrades. They are a family that cares for each other, and you see them as humans when they get hit with setbacks, such as imprisonment, property damage, and even death. It's why Bill finds it so difficult to plot against them, because the Panthers do not deserve what's coming to them. The Trial of the Chicago 7 focuses more on the wider groups who are also seen as radical. The Black Panthers do appear here, including Fred Hampton, but the conflict is mainly between two ideologies. The people on trial represent the youth, the educated, the peaceful, and they want to take a nonviolent approach to expressing their dissatisfaction of the government. On the other side is the Justice Department, the Chicago PD, and Judge Hoffman, who are all about keeping power to themselves and silencing any of their critics. What's interesting here is that the biggest villain in the movie is the judge. You have cops beating up innocent people, the prosecution is trying to make an example of them, yet the judge is the biggest a-hole of them all. I hate him. I'd say he's the best antagonist out of all the movies. He's clearly abusing his power throughout the trial, and nobody can do anything about it. Most of the characters of Nomadland are nomads. From what I read, many of the characters are real-life van dwellers, including Bob Wells, one of the most prominent figures of that community. People in this community act as mentors to Fern as she's newer to the way of life. They show her how to be resourceful and direct her to any job opportunities out there. They're not territorial. They're not competitive. They're a family. The movie also takes the time to tell their individual stories. They talk about their past and what led them to this lifestyle. And they're all happy, which makes me admire them more. Of course, you have to have characters that don't necessarily object to the lifestyle, but they don't understand it. In the beginning of the movie, Fern runs into an old friend and her children, and they offer her a place to stay, thinking she's on hard times. Most people would feel this way, but Fern refuses, because she doesn't want the pity and is not hard up for shelter. She's doing just fine. Now I have to ask myself which of these groups serve as better characters. All of these characters are based on real people, but Nomadland presented a group that we don't know much about, and it does a great job of educating us about this community. In the other two films, we're very familiar with, with all of them, because the conflict they represent is still alive today. You wonder if anything has really changed in 50 years. But I will give a slight edge to the Chicago 7. You do have a very complex character in Judas and the Black Messiah, but after watching the trial of the Chicago 7, I came out of it feeling a little bit more satisfied. I can't say too much, but let's just say that there was a little bit more justice at the end. To sum it up, Nomadland gets three points, Chicago 7 gets two, and Judas gets one. And don't worry, I'm keeping track of the score. Round four. Round four is cast and crew. I will be mentioning four movies in this round, 
and I made my determination based on the acting. I put weight on the performances over everything else. And this also speaks to the directing because the directors were able to pull out the best in each of these actors. So the four movies are The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, and Sound of Metal. There weren't many actors in The Father. It's a, it's a more intimate film. Olivia Coleman is a distinguished actress and she doesn't disappoint here. It was also nice to see Rufus Sewell in a role where he's not despicable. He's not totally nice in this movie, but he's not the bad guy by any means. But it's Anthony Hopkins who gives an incredible performance here. He goes through all these moods. He's jolly at one moment, and the next he's irritable, and then he's confused and scared. I'm almost certain that Chadwick Boseman will win the Oscar for Best Actor this year. It's a posthumous honor. But if he wasn't in consideration, I would say Anthony Hopkins wins it. He was that good. I did say earlier that acting was the strongest part of Judas and the Black Messiah. We already know how crazy it is that both Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield were nominated for Best Supporting Actor and not Best Actor. I'm thinking about it now, and I don't think these two guys spent that much time on screen together. They each had their moments to shine, but it, it would have been powerful to just have a scene with the two of them together having a meaningful conversation. Kind of like uh, De Niro and Pacino and Heat, that kind of thing. I also have to mention that this was sort of a get-out reunion, as you had three actors starring in both movies. You had Kaluuya, Stanfield, and Lil Rel Howery. I also want to acknowledge some of the other actors who made up the rest of the Chicago Black Panther Party. Those are Dominique Fishback, Ashton Sanders, Algie Smith, Daryl Britt Gibson, and Dominique Thorne. The primary cast of Minati is of Korean descent. I didn't look too deep into this and see if any of the actors needed to learn Korean in preparation for the roles. I think some had more familiarity than others. But that's not important. Steven Yeun is nominated for Best Actor, which is deserved. But I'm going to say something crazy here. Hot take. I think Steven's a great actor. I'm a huge fan. I think he's dreamy. However, I think the other actors gave much better performances than him. Yoon Young Joon played the grandmother, and she was so fun to watch on screen. She kept that movie from being a total downer. I really hope she wins Best Supporting Actress. But you also have Han Ye Ri, who plays the mother, Monica, and she goes through so much more than anybody else. She has heated fights with her husband. She's trying to be a good caretaker to her mother and her kids. She had great range. And the kids had major roles and were able to carry this film, especially the young boy, Alan S. Kim. He was so adorable. He had to have been, what, seven years old? And he's holding his own as he shares the screen with these more experienced actors? Unbelievable. Now to Sound of Metal. I want to mention first that a lot of the cast was hired from the deaf community. Sia should have taken notes and maybe hired an autistic actor for her movie, but I digress. One of the actors, Paul Racy, he plays a deaf man, but he himself is not deaf. He is, however, a child of deaf adults, or CODA, so he has experience in American Sign Language and is familiar with communicating with the hearing impaired. Riz Ahmed, I know, had to do a lot of preparation for this role. He learned a little bit of drumming, he worked on his ASL, but what was really important for this role was to show how tortured Ruben was. Although he's being a little stubborn about adjusting Riz Ahmed still makes us care about him. 
he makes us curious to see how his journey is going to play out. I would say that out of all eight films, the very best scene came from Sound of Metal. You have Paul Racy and Riz Ahmed. Their characters are sitting in a kitchen and they have a conversation. It's not heavy handed. It's not a shouting match, but it becomes a turning point in the movie. Both Paul and Riz gave some of the best performances in these few minutes. As I said earlier, if they had that kind of scene with Daniel and Lakeith in their movie, it would have been magic. I feel the best way to judge this round is to look at quantity. How many actors had breakthrough performances in their respective films? Judas had the most, and I'm not even counting the white actors. No offense. So it's going to win this round, followed by Minari and then Sound of Metal. It was definitely worth mentioning The Father, but unfortunately, it will not win any points in this round. Round five. Round five is music. The films with the best music are Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, and Promising Young Woman makes its first appearance in this debate. Mark Isham and Craig Harris put the score together for Judas and the Black Messiah. I distinctly remember there being a jazz fluence in the musical score. It also features an original song that is played during the ending credits. It's called Fight For You by Her. It's nominated for Best Original Song. It's a good R&B single. This isn't part of the film itself, but there was an album called The Inspired Album that came out the same day of the film's release, and it featured songs from some of the most successful rap artists, including Nas, Jay-Z, ASAP Rocky, Rakim, and the late Nipsey Hussle. Mank was composed by longtime collaborators Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. It sounds surprising because there's not a single ounce of synth in the soundtrack. But then you remember Mank was directed by David Fincher, whom they've worked with a lot, and it all makes sense. I was pleasantly surprised by the score. They created music that felt very appropriate to that time. Big brass, strings, piano. Because of COVID, all of the musicians recorded their parts separately. They did the recordings at home, and Trent and Atticus somehow put the pieces together. They recorded a total of three hours worth of original music. Promising Young Woman uses pop music to make it clear that we're dealing with a contemporary story, something that is currently relevant. And I think they chose to use popular songs, I guess, to make everything feel uncomfortably close to home. I'll mention some of the songs featured. Sin has two songs for this movie, Drinks and Uh-Oh. There's Boys by Charlie XCS. Paris Hilton has a song in here called Stars Are Blind. There's a song called Your Eyes by Blessis and Last Lap by Fletcher. We also got a couple of remixes in here. The Weather Girls' It's Raining Men is remixed by Death by Romy. And there's an awesome remix of Britney Spears' Toxic, arranged by Anthony Willis and Stephen Baker. I don't know who they are, but they created a great arrangement. Meg wins this round easily. I feel the music is the most supportive to the story, and I'm more aware of its presence. And again, I was pleasantly surprised that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross pulled this off. And if we're talking about music supporting the narrative, then that means Promising Young Woman comes in second. And that leaves Judas and the Black Messiah in third. Round six. Round six is production. We've got four films for this round. They are Mank, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, and Sound of Metal. Everything in Mank was shot in black and white. 
They didn't adjust the coloring in post-production. With that in mind, the rest of the crew had to make creative decisions to make sure they could get the right look. The cinematographer Eric Messerschmidt would shoot night scenes during the day. It's otherwise known as the day-for-night technique, and he does this in order to get the appropriate lighting. Trish Somerville and Donald Graham Burt used monochromatic filters on their iPhones to see how their costumes and set designs would look in black and white, and made their decisions accordingly. The end result is this beautiful-looking film that looks like it came right out of the 1940s. Since I focused on actors in the cast and crew round, I'm going to bring this up now. Director Chloe Zhao worked overtime on her film Nomadland. Not only was she the director, but she was also the writer, producer, and editor. That's not all. During this time, she was also working on a Marvel movie, The Eternals. Busy, busy girl. Joshua James Richards was on double duty by being both the cinematographer and the production designer, and Hannah Peterson was in charge of costume design. I couldn't get confirmation of this, but I'm pretty sure the nomads who were cast in this film also served as consultants. It's important that if the film is going for accuracy in portraying the van dwellers and their homes, then they would at least need the nomad seal of approval. But what I really want to mention is the filming locations. They film in multiple states and landmarks, including Arizona, South Dakota, Nevada, and Nebraska. I won't say much about the workplaces because the movie is not trying to criticize the quality of work at an Amazon factory, but the nomads visit national parks, tourist attractions, oceans, mountains, and this film does well in showing the beauty and charm of non-urban America. If I could come up with one word to describe the look of promising young woman, it would either be bright or bubbling. And that's interesting when you juxtapose it to the dark nature of the story. I think in the opening credits, the title shows up in neon lights. The coffee shop that Cassie works at has a pastel color-coded scheme. The pharmacy she and Ryan go to is illuminated by more neon lights. And Cassie has incredible fashion sense. She wears these adorable dresses, skirts and blouses, and her wavy blonde hair complements her face. She looks so soft, yet all of that is concealing the darkness inside her soul. Also, all of the predators in this movie, they all look like nice guys. They seem non-threatening by the looks of their khaki pants and their press shirts, but that's the point. You never really know someone's true intentions based on the clothes on their back. Those are some really cool creative choices. One thing I want to mention in Sound of Metal is the sound, because it is so effective in this movie. Six people worked on the sound design you hear in this film, Three of them happen to be from Mexico. When Ruman is in the deaf community, there is no talking, of course, but the other diegetic noises are heightened. There's a scene at the dinner table where all you hear are the utensils hitting the plates and hands hitting the table. There's discomfort in those sounds because they're not really important. What's important is the conversation going on, the one that Ruben doesn't understand, because it's all in sign language. Then, there's also the sounds that Ruben can sort of hear. The six sound mixers do a really good job of recreating these distortions to give us an idea of how much Ruben has lost with his hearing. Now to decide the winner. I think Mank had to be really ambitious, and it's clear the film required a large production value. So I'll give three points to Mank. Second place goes to Nomadland for the exact opposite. It didn't need a high production value to be a good-looking film. 
And between Promising Young Woman and Sound of Metal, I'm going to split it. They each get half a point. Because I can't decide between the aesthetic choices of one and the technical mastery of the other. And now we've reached round seven. Round seven is Legacy. It's hard to make an argument for Legacy for movies that are less than a year old, but what I'll do is decide which movies I think might be the most culturally significant. Which of these films would be part of a larger discussion? So with that in mind, I have chosen Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, and Promising Young Woman. In Judas, I don't think this changes our opinions on the Black Panther Party, but it is part of a continuing discussion of Black people being unfairly treated by law enforcement. Also, you got a great film with a mostly Black cast, and I hope that this is a continuation of a trend. More executives need to recognize that a mostly Black cast can bring in an audience of all races and ethnicities, not just the African-American audience. I think the same thing can be said for Minati. A mostly Asian cast has won the hearts of many this year. And this film came out at a peculiar time as there's been an uptick in anti-Asian crime and rhetoric. Director Lee Isaac Chung was smart in having Korean dialogue throughout this movie. I know some people don't care to read subtitles, and they might prefer to watch English language films because this is America. Screw that. Stories are universal, and just because a film might be in another language doesn't make it less relatable. Open your mind. You might realize that people are more alike than different. Promising Young Woman is a commentary on rape culture, and it's not only an issue between the victim and their assailant. Many other people influence the way sexual assault is addressed. Hopefully, with the success of Promising Young Woman and the progress of the Me Too movement, there will be more movies that center on this issue, and the more it is addressed, the more likely society will want to move away from a culture that allows men to violate women without consequence. I believe that Promising Young Woman has had more discussion around it than any of the other films, and I think it will continue to, so it's going to win this round. Not to take anything away from Judas and the Black Messiah, but the fact that Minati tells a universal story means a lot to me. In my own writing, my goal is to show that I not only have experiences that only come out of being Mexican-American, that's important, but my stories prove that I'm just like everyone else. As a minority, I'm unique, but I'm not different. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, Minati is second in this round, and Judas comes in third. The debate has finally come to an end. I've counted up the scores, and the winner of the semi-failed writer's best picture debate is... Mank. Really? Mank received a total of eight points. It did extremely well in dialogue, music, and production. And for what it's worth, Judas and the Black Messiah came in second with six points and was mentioned in four different categories. Does this mean Mank is going to actually win Best Picture at the Oscars? I don't think so. Is Mank my favorite film out of the bunch? Absolutely not. To be honest, this was probably my least favorite film. I nearly fell asleep watching it. If I was a member of the Academy and I was given a ballot to cast, my vote for Best Picture would be for Sound of Metal. Incredible character arc, great acting, 
great use of sound, and all of that means more to me than shooting in black and white or fast-paced dialogue. And see, that's the thing. With this debate, I put equal importance on all of these rounds, but the voters don't do the same thing. They shouldn't. Every component in a film doesn't have to be groundbreaking. It just needs to be effective in supporting the overall idea, the main message that the audience needs to know about. This just shows that the formula I created here is incredibly inaccurate, but that's okay. I'm glad I watched all of these nominees for Best Picture, and I'm glad I could have this discussion with you. You can reach me at semifailedwriter at gmail.com. My website is semifailedwriter.com. I am on Twitch and Instagram at semifailedwriter. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back with a new episode very soon. Until then, I hope you guys take care of yourselves. Until next time. Bye.